Welcome to the Stay the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. The Stay of the Markets podcast is ranked globally in the top 1.5% out of 2,976,750 podcasts. So I just want to say a big thank you for listening. And our very special returning guest this week is Sir Stephen Wilkinson. So, Stephen Wilkinson, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Another year. As you were saying, another year has passed, and uh, it's, I can't say I've noticed anything amiss, have you? <laughs> no, nothing. Business as usual. <laughs> so where, where do we want to kick off, guys? Uh, I, I think, uh, logically, we really should start just for formality's sake, with the collapse of uh, of FTX and SBF. And assorted other acronyms. I've just I've just put together next week's commentary, which I'm gonna go send out on Monday. And I just want to give credit to JK Galbraith. JK Galbraith is responsible basically for I I would say one of the finest investment books ever penned, namely The Great Crash of 1929. Yeah. <clears throat> and specifically, he coined the term the bezel. So I'm yes. just going to quickly read out a, a paragraph, which I think is uh, symptomatic of just how stylish this gentleman is, perhaps ma- perhaps matched only by Stephen himself, uh, the legendary Stephen Wilkinson on Substack. So this is J.K. Galbraith. In many ways, the effect of the crash on embezzlement was more significant than on suicide. To the economist, embezzlement is the most interesting of crimes. Alone among the various forms of larceny, it has a time parameter. Weeks, months, or years may elapse between the commission of the crime and its discovery. This is a period, incidentally, when the embezzler has his gain, and the man who has been embezzled, oddly enough, feels no loss. There is a net increase in psychic wealth. At any given time, there exists an inventory of undiscovered embezzlement in, or more precisely, not in, the country's business and banks. This inventory, it should perhaps be called the bezel, amounts at any moment to many millions of dollars. It also varies in size with the business cycle. In good times, people are relaxed, trusting, and money is plentiful. But even though money is plentiful, there are always many people who need more. Under these circumstances, the rate of embezzlement grows, the rate of discovery falls off, and the bezel increases rapidly. In depression, all this is reversed. Money is watched with a narrow, suspicious eye. The man who handles it is assumed to be dishonest unless he proves himself otherwise. Audits are penetrating and meticulous. Commercial morality is enormously improved. The bezel shrinks. And I find that a wonderful coinage of the cyclicality of, of, of morality within the business cycle that when you have these blowouts, and I'd, I'd say what's happened with, in crypto land as an example, after a while, people start to improve their behavior because everyone distrusts everybody else more than normal. It normally, it's actually come at a strange time, isn't it? Because normally it would happen when there's a collapsing broader market and actually things have been turning around a little bit. Of course, actually, you could say it's been driven by the bond yields and the fact that... Um, or possibly by, by certain currency effects as well. As well, yes. there. I guess there is that too. But you would expect that for the actual event to have happened around a, a stock market event, which hasn't been on this occasion, which makes it slightly more worrying, really, if there's another shoe to drop. I, is that true? In, in what sense? Well, I'm trying to think back of the, the, the last big bezel, I mean, apart from the, the uber bezel that fiat currency is, um, 
the represents. But the last big bezel was was Madoff, wasn't it? Yes. Um, now Madoff was unmasked at a point in the cycle that was, if I remember rightly, not associated with a general market decline, but because it had just reached the level of its asymptotic rise. And, you know, under Herb Stein's metaphor, um, quotation, if something can't go on forever, it will stop. Well, it, the point at which it stops doesn't necessarily, if it's an individual bezel, it doesn't necessarily have to be predicated on a collapse or a a retrenchment of of markets generally, does it? The Madoff scandal. I, I can't remember exactly what the market. I'm just doing. I'm just looking it up now. Yeah. So basically, his sons went to the Fed in December 2008, which was clearly just a oh. few months after the Lehman um, collapse. But I don't I don't think it had anything really to do with movements in the broad market because the whole thing was, was a scam anyway. Was, was that 2008? Okay, well then I'm wrong. But this particular one, this particular embezzlement. But the embezzlement took place in the year, years leading up to that, clearly. Right, but we were asking why, why did it pop and why now? Mm. And and Paul's point was, I think, that it's odd that it should have happened outside of a significant market drawdown, which is the sort of receding tide that Buffett referred to that exposes these things. But it seemed to me more like an assassination like, um, a drive -by, bit, like a drive-by shooting. Well, no, 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 a proper assassination. I mean, there's there's somebody. I said who, 78 I, people behind 200 grassy knolls. Well, no, I think it was one guy, wasn't it? It was the head of Binance, the Chinese gentleman. C CZ or whatever his name is. CZ or CZ for our yeah. American listeners, um, who, in a sort of classic bullfight. Um, applied the coup de grace mm. with that tweet a week and a half ago that effectively killed him. Mm. I mean, it was, it was deliberate. It was an act of, if you like, corporate strategy um, to take down somebody who was obviously skewing the market. Um, and it was done with brilliant efficiency. I mean, what did it take? It took, didn't even take a week. Um, until the entire um, scope of the bezel was exposed in its entirety, I and mean, it's been—it's not been two weeks since the whole thing exploded. And it's, I find it fascinating the speed at which it's unravelled, and the sheer volume of duplicity. I don't know whether you've seen the balance sheet that. Um, um, that FTX was sending round to investors last week. It's absolutely fascinating. A, it sounds like it sounds like you've seen it. What, what, did, what, seen it. what did it show? What was? What it's, was it's, it's, well, it's a bag of rubbish. I mean, it literally right. is. And and the really important question is: I mean, it shows a balance sheet that is sort of more or less in balance, with a slight difference between the assets and liabilities, you know, with, uh, there's slightly less assets than there are liabilities. But the assets, interesting, or the liabilities, interesting enough, are customer deposits, so that's real money. And the liabilities are all, well, they're all made up. Uh, the assets are all made up, or the largest part of them are made up. In other words, the assets represented on the asset side of the balance sheet are 
are inflated value instruments from the FTX world and all the tokens associated with it that effectively cost them nothing to create. And the same goes for most of the other assets. They are are virtual assets insofar as they're predicated on being issued at nothing. It doesn't cost Mm. anything to issue them. But they represent the asset side of the balance sheet against those liabilities. The thing that's missing is the cash. Mm. It's not as if they took 60 million of liabilities and swapped it into something for which they paid 16 billion. Those 16 billion are not represented by stuff they've actually bought, which begs the question, (laughs) when God's name is the money? And of course, we have got an inkling where it's gone. It's gone to private causes the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party, various um, various of these strange charitable structures, and presumably to the hedge fund, um, what's it called again? Almeida, Alameda, Alameda uh, Research, Alameda Research, that presumably also had spent a large amount of money trying to prop up the crypto markets when they were collapsing in the in the summer. So anyway, the, the money's sort of gone through the balance sheet and it's only represented in notional assets by um, by these tokens mainly uh, that are worth, so it's a it's self-referencing balance sheet on the asset side that is worth nothing. So I imagine all of that money is genuinely gone and it would surprise me if the creditors were able to get a penny, get very much at all. The thing that I was I was struck by was again it reminded me of um, uh, the the Madoff thing and I, there's a book that you may have read called No One Would Listen by a gentleman called Harry Markopoulos. Markopoulos, yep, I and, following, um, following his writings. Yeah, so I'm just looking at looking at the, the the commentary for next week now in front of me, and he says in his 2005 submission to the SEC alone, Markopoulos highlighted 30 reasons to suspect Madoff of fraud, and then James Grant. Um, of the Grant Central Trade Observer reviewing the book said uh, how to improve financial regulation, reduce the federal budget deficit all in one fell swoop, fire the SEC, hire Harry Markopoulos. And 10 years later, it was... History, um, history has repeated itself. But well, the, ten, 10 years later, it's the, the, the guy calling, you know, calling, um, calling bullshit on this is um, what's, what's um, Alder Lane Eggs? What's his real name? <laughs> What's the um, the great short seller who's uh, who called this presciently? Uh, oh, the um, um, Michael Burry, you mean? Or no, 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 friend of Grant's. Um, oh, I don't, I've not heard. I've not heard yeah, the great, there's the great short seller who who, who took Chainos, Jim Chainos. No, no, it'll come, it'll come to me in a minute. Um, but he he's been he called this brilliantly um, about a month ago and said the guy is complete bullshit and fraud and nothing about this stacks up at all and he called it out for a complete scam. Mm. Um, fascinating. What I what I what I find wonderful about the current situation relative to say the the Madoff time or for that matter you know, anything around the last you know decade or so of of, of increasing financial crime is this time round you could read about it in real time on Substack. There's been some superb coverage on Substack. Oh, amazing! Really, truly amazing. I mean, Substack is is rapidly becoming 
one of the very few places that you can go to and just wander like a large library, mm. wander through some outstanding writing and commentary in real time. Much of it, much of which is available for free. Much of which is available for free. Indeed, it is. I mean, I know you and I are both on Substack, and and they are doing. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to get on, Paul. You have to get on. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... we should get the pod on it, and um, it's just yeah, it's just a question of timing, really, uh, having time. It it is it is fantastic. I'm a fan. I mean, I I speak as a Substack fan as a, as a forced refugee from Twitter, um, and it's it's actually so much better. It's obviously a different animal, but I mean, I, I just wish I'd discovered Substack sooner because it's the, the quality of writing, you know, given given the the amount of it is just is is quite incredibly high. Yeah, and Mark Cahodes is the guy I'm thinking of, um, who wrote, who who gave the interview about four weeks ago on. Bankman Freed and, and called him out. Um, I've not, interestingly, I've, I've really not interestingly heard as uh, interestingly as a public service, mm. he said, "I've got." He's not short anything. He's not. He said, "But this is." He has, no, a, he has no dog in the fight. Then no, no dog in the fight. He said, "Just but this is such egregious fraud that you know he couldn't help himself." <laughs> yeah, I've just found him. Great. Yeah, I'll be uh, following him from now. That's... So do you, do you see any wider implications from this? Do you see any any more collateral damage directly from the? the I don't know. I know. I know. As, I know. This is limited much... to the crypto well, you know, clown world. It, I think the whole question. I think what is much more interesting is what role, what role does the crypto space play in our in the sort of narrative of of our modern economy and the the issues that we're facing. And one of the things that is a that I've realized reflecting on this latest tulip mania ending over the last 10 days is that cryptocurrency is a peculiarly millennial um, theater of operations. And that in itself is interesting because the it's the only area that was available to that generation and possibly the sort of more adult end of the of the generation after. I don't know what they're called. Are they Gen Z or mm. um, because they've effectively been shut out of every single other market? Yeah, they can't. They, they don't have enough money to buy to speculate in property. Right. So, so, so all the normal assets, stocks, bonds, bonds throughout the 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 you know as the millennials have have matured and come to come to into their sort of adult earning power bonds have been an appalling place to be they they haven't had any chance to accumulate equity many of them are sitting on horrendous student debts um the cost of living has gone through the roof whilst they've been growing up and starting to earn the job market has been extremely volatile all the normal assets that they're parents and grandparents have sort of aggregated to themselves are beyond their scope so they can't buy houses they can't they're living in miserable conditions they and they're looking around and seeing those generations our generation and the boomer generation you know getting richer on their their assets that they have mm. as a class or as a generation almost no chance of participating in Unless so all, they, they, all they've had left is digital scratch cards. Well, and they've, they've, yeah, if you like, they've had this this 
technology, which has its own language, a language which, by the way, is impenetrable to us. You know, we don't get it. We don't, we don't really understand what tokens are. We don't understand all this gobbledygook around exchanges and, and, and regulated and unregulated. No, they're not called regulated. They're called something else. But anyway, we only have a vague understanding of what all this stuff means, if we're honest. You know, there are some of us who, who have made the effort to understand it. But it is a, it's a game that is played virtually, so it's reminiscent of the world in which they grew up in, in which a lot of their their activity was around playing games and video games and, and doing things virtually. It was inaccessible to the generations above them. So thank God for that. You know, they don't understand it. They developed their own language. It was arcane. And it promised lightning speed rewards and riches that mm. would somehow equalize the game with their fuddy-duddy and wealthier um, parents and grandparents' generation. And the collapse of crypto and the fraud that's been perpetrated on them is doubly painful and will not be without repercussions, societally, politically, or anything else, because they've now had that taken away from them as well. Yeah. And and I and I think that the the implications are while we're all well those of us who never really understood it anyway and who sort of followed Munger's turd analogy that mm. all this was turd and we all knew we knew we all knew it. We all knew that it was rubbish and we all knew it was no value. And we all all of us now and I would be very wary of being um, holier than thou about this or gloating because I think the damage psychologically that is being done now to that generation is tinder for a an explosive reaction. I mean, I don't know where that's going to go, but if you look at it from a societal perspective, the one asset that they thought they they knew all about and they could trade in and they could create wealth for themselves, that generation has just had that blown out of the water. Mm. And who knows what, what effect that will have on capital formation, on loyalty to the system. Um, I suspect that the repercussions will be far, far reaching. On the one hand, oh, that's sort of one take, and, and, and if you'll allow me, I'll take a, give you a second. And the second is that... As in all of these crashes, possibly except for tulip mania, the, there is a core relevance of the technology that in its primary manifestation or first iteration, the one that we've just had, led to these speculative excesses and a denigration of it. But in all of the previous histories of, of manias, there's always been one or two companies, and they're there right now in the rubble of this crypto Debark. collapse, earthquake. Mm. There are the, the the one or two companies who have genuinely powerful entrepreneurs who are going to be burnished in the fire by this near-death experience, who understand the technology, who have a vision for its application, who have visions for their own 
role in in applying that technology and who will be leading the the charge on the application of those technologies in the next iteration. <clears throat> and they are probably now available for cents on the dollar or at fractions of the prices they were trading at, I don't know, five, ten months ago. Um, they're out there. They're definitely out there. I don't know enough about that market to tell you which ones they are. But think Amazon in December of 2001, trading at six at the low, tradable at seven and eight, definitely tradable in you know significant volumes um, in seven and eight, 94% down from its peak, um, but with a superb businessman at the helm who was unfazed, who had used the capital markets previously to, to stock up on, I think he had, um, he did, he placed a 500 million convertible note in the summer of 2001, I think, um, which was more than enough to see him through. So he had plenty of cash. He had a business model that worked. It wasn't throwing off profit deliberately because he was investing all of his cash flow plus some um, into systems, markets, and marketing. He knew what he was doing. And, you know, lo and behold, 10 years later, that eight had turned to 800. So they're in there somewhere. Um, and the people who understand these markets and understand the personalities and the entrepreneurs making them, and I don't know whether they're in the US or they're in China or wherever they are, but they're out there and they're buyable at rock bottom prices or will be. To move back to a more traditional asset class, namely debt, bonds, government bonds, or in the UK, gilts, are you surprised that there hasn't been more, we haven't seen more repercussions from the, the blow up after the, the blow up associated, though I think not necessarily strictly wholly accountable on the back of the Liz Trust Quasi Quarteng mini budget? Are you surprised that we haven't seen more corpses float up to the, to the, no. the top of the waves? No, because uh, I think um, as, as the defenestration of trusts within a month of her taking on prime ministerial responsibility demonstrated to anybody who wanted to watch what was happening, the system is going to do whatever it takes to defend itself. It's no longer, I mean, it may as well be nationalized mm. uh, for, all the, for all the manipulation that is self-evidently going on. It's no longer a market. It is a Potemkin market. Yeah, it is. It's a Potemkin market, and and so it doesn't matter. You know, the 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 price of gilts, the price of any bond at the moment is no is is not indicative of the time value of money. It's not mm. indicative of any any genuine nominal uh, real rate of risk. It's not indicative of, any, of anything. And the bond markets are you know they're, they're not markets anymore. They are. I don't know what you call them. If they're not, they're not markets. They are they're, they're prosperity sand, sand pits for various types of speculators. Yeah. Yes. Well, I don't even think it's that. I think the speculators on the edge. You know, the, what what can they do? They are hundred percent manipulated, mm. um, and they are they're there as they're there because. They're where they are because they can't be anywhere else. Because if they were to be priced properly, um, I think we would, 
you know, we would be seeing whole-scale collapse. And we're not going to see that for the moment. So, no, I'm not, I don't even bother looking at it anymore. The, the, re- the reason I ask is because uh, something I was talking, I had lunch with Paul earlier today, and it was something we were talking about over lunch. And thank you for lunch, by the way, Paul. Very um, the, the It seems to me that the everything around that sort of that, that mini guilt you know, collapse of, of September <clears throat> and the associated moves in sterling, and sterling's been weakening against the dollar for some time anyway. But those, those shifts were consistent with, <clears throat> how do I put this? basically that the bank of england showing that when you take interest rates down to zero you, you create a black hole a monetary black hole and that you cannot escape from it so you can try and you can try and pretend that you're going to hike rates but all you can really do is, is destroy your own market and destroy your own currency and that the, the bank of england and matched by the bank of japan have just shown the they're they're basically the sort of twin canaries in the coal mine, but every central bank is ultimately going to experience the same shock. So the next one will probably be the ECB, and ultimately this this, this tsunami wave will hit the Fed, but the Fed will be the last one to be affected because it's the the perceived least dirty shirt. In other words, I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is we are going to get a a reset, but it's not necessarily the reset of central bank digital currency. It'll, It'll be a catastrophic demolition of the previous currency system to be replaced by something else, whatever that might be. Right, well, Discuss. You, you, and, you and I, or the three of us, are, I think, much of a mind on that, or at least have been over the past couple of years. I, I agree. I, 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 I have to agree. because. So, so what we're really arguing about is the, is the, is the timing, uh, you know, as ever. Well, I've found one of your, one of your guests who's been invited back to the show almost as often as I have, um, Akil. Is, is Akil Patel, who, by the way, um, I had address a group of entrepreneurs from the US who spent a week in Oxford um, with technology entrepreneurs at a fascinating conference called Moonshots and Moneymakers, um, where we were marrying US-based entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs with established businesses with um, with high-tech and new-tech um, emergent technologies from the very deep and rich Oxford University ecosystem. That's Harwell and the Oxford Innovation Center. Um, and Akil came and addressed us um, and gave his um, wonderful uh, land cycle theory um, presentation, which I have to admit was one of the best presentations of the um, of the conference week. And I have been using Akhil's framework, um, having read deeply around his sources and indeed his manuscript. Um, and I'm using that as my go-to framework for a lot of business decisions, particularly around exits and capital raising activities. And if his cycle theory is to believe to be believed, and there's an awful lot there are an awful lot of good reasons for believing it, then we are now in the first third of the second seven year upleg, which will end somewhere around 2026 in the US and probably with a year lag or six months lag in, in the UK and Europe. And if that is true, if that is true, then 
this cycle, this cyclical top in 2026, will coincide with the um, the Kondratiev um, longer cycle, and it will also be particularly virulent and aggressive for the simple reason that we've never had a stage, I don't think, in which levels of wealth have moved so far away from levels of GDP. They've always sort of tracked each other more or less with little sort of blips. But at the moment, we're somewhere in the region of 200% above where we ought to be given the trend of nominal GDP. So I think that when there's a correction, it will be brutal because it has to correct that overvaluation of 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 wealth or that over creation of wealth over the sustainable trend of um, of national gdp so i'm 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 looking at pretty much everything that's happening and asking is that validating the land cycle theory hypothesis or is it disproving it and so far mm. it would appear to be to me that even though it's been a bit bumpy this last year, um, that there's no indication that that's that that trend is not um, is not intact. And in fact, I would go as far as to say that the fact that it is so bumpy and that it isn't collapsing is an indication that things are probably going to ease in 2023, and we will set the stage for the ramp up, um, the blow off, if you like, up into. 2026, and then we will get back into party mode in 2024 or 2025. That has to be, that has to be the case. Um, and the world's tallest building hasn't been announced yet, so so we've got we've got to wait for that to happen. Yeah, there, there are a few indicators of the top. That is one of them. In the 2007 crisis, you had was the the, 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 the Burj, wasn't it? Yeah, um, but you, interestingly, you had the banks and the property stocks were, they'd already topped out. They topped out in 2005. So they gave you a two-year sort of lead on what was actually going to happen in the broader market. So 26, it, it could, I think Akil said on the podcast that it, it stops then or should around then, but it's, it's still an average of 18.6 years. So it, it can be a few years either side. And then the party can continue for a bit before it turns down as well. So picking the exact top is uh, there will be more than one sign and um, there may be a few signs that get ignored. I mean, I remember the 2007 crisis when, um, you know, there, there was problems in the um, in the interest rate in the, with liquidity in the markets, in the short-term interest rate markets. And that didn't seem to have it had a short-term effect, but it didn't have a massive effect. And it's almost like people were so mesmerized by the fact that times were so good, they were just ignoring all the bad news and assuming that every step was a step that fixed it. There was liquidity being pumped in, there was bond buying, there was all sorts of stuff going on. And these were the early stages where people, yeah, 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 there's a bit of a problem, but it's, it's already been fixed now. And there was, I think there were a few bank failures that got ignored as, ignored as well. So the signs... Well, you had, you, you had a few, sorry to cut in, Paul, you had a few money market funds basically breaking the buck, as it's yes, known. Yes, that's right. And that was in you, September. And, and then you had the failure of best earns. Yes. And the best earns thing ultimately got swept into, what was it, JP Morgan? 
But that, that was all 2007. That was before that was before the year that became the Lehman year. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So as you, as you say, you know, the, 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 a, bear, a, a sorry, a bull market dies hard because you know the people are so loath to relinquish the good times that in the, the the first early stage of the cracks are just not even acknowledged as such. I I remember um, May of 2007 um, because. I was. Oh, of course, we had Northern Rock as well. Northern Rock was kicking off, wasn't it? It, it? Well, that was, I think, about a month later. But in May, I was in the city in discussions with a business that I was involved in and owned a significant stake in that were looking to refinance a mezzanine portfolio of um, German mid market corporate debt at 200 million. And we were in conversations with a venerable city institution who had been accompanying us throughout the year previously as we were building the portfolio, as they were building the portfolio, to refinance it. And I remember joining a meeting in which the cap structure and refinancing was being discussed and it was literally as if a fox had been let out into the hen house. It, the, the, the level of incomprehension and panic that I could sense amongst the people we were talking to and the desperation with which they were trying to recapitalize this structure was palpable. It was a sign that things were going seriously wrong. Um, and... I hadn't really paid much attention to the US subprime market before that, but I started paying a lot of attention to it immediately when I got back from uh, from London. Um, and it seemed to me to be obvious that we were heading for something extremely dangerous because that that level of panic in the refinancing operations of you know, a serious player in the city, already visible in May 2007, um, was the kickoff of a, of a series of activities and collapses that was like, it was like watching it in slow motion um, as it rolled through, you know, first the weak ones, and then continued all the way through 2008, getting worse and worse. But still, equity markets were rising. I, I remember it was exactly you know, what I was about to say. If you I, I remember at, yeah, giving a speech in. Um, I was addressing a sort of wealth management conference. I think in in December of two thousand and eight. No, it can't be because that was afterwards. It was maybe it was, it was December two thousand and seven. Would have made sense. December two thousand seven. It yeah. must have been December two thousand seven. Because near the high. Because. The, the, high, the, the equity markets were continuing to rise, interest rates were rising too, and bond markets were dropping. And I remember asking the question or saying, they can't both be right. It cannot both be right. It cannot be true that equity markets are rising on the back of positive expectations. And at the same time, the risk in the economy being um, the default risk that's being um, described by the performance of the bond markets um, is showing that there's trouble ahead. They can't both be right. And if in doubt, trust the bond markets. In those days, you could say that. You can't mm. say that. But I, I think the point of, 
of um, why we were pointing these things out, these anecdotal things, it makes it sound very much like that it's going to be obvious. And it's only obvious if you know what to look for. With everybody else, I mean, my, my peers at an investment bank that I was working with, they couldn't see it. E even with these signs, they, they couldn't see it. And they were... And, and, and to suggest anything other than that was you would laughed out the room and it was quite amazing. So Main Street, you'd expect Main Street not to be able to see it, but I'm talking about city professionals not seeing it either. But I've, 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 written, I've written about this quite extensively, or at least I've written the same point frequently, which is in my experience starting off in the bond market is that the city is uniquely awful at teaching cross-disciplinary um, behavior or interest. So that, for example, so this, this is my experience as a bond salesman in the 90s, and I appreciate that the whole market's changed since then. So I was a generalist sales guy, and I was perfectly happy to sell within reason, assuming it worked for clients, government debt, corporate debt, floating rate, emerging market, structured notes, whatever. But as long as it made sense. <clears throat> but that was that was quite a sort of that was quite a rare a rare thing for most people, in particular on the trading side. You might start, if ever, start as a generalist trader, but sooner or later you'd end up. As a, as a bunt trader, trading two to three-year obbles. And the problem with that is, as the city forces you down a narrow and narrower silo, firstly, the individuals involved in that siloization run the risk of career obsolescence because you, your, your, your trading activity just disappears overnight and you're stuffed. But more to the point, it doesn't give you any, it doesn't give you any vision beyond the top of your own silo. Mm, that's a very good and point. So I saw I saw this firsthand when I went back to my colleagues at, at Merrill Lynch Institutional in around 99, 2000. And these are guys <clears throat> on the credit side that I would trust implicitly to run a bond portfolio. But when I saw, because I'd been working in private client world for a, a while by this stage, and by the time I got back, these are guys I say I would trust implicitly on the bond front. But when I saw the kind of stuff that they had in their PA portfolios in equity investments, it was laughable. So it became abundantly clear to me, and I'm not trying to be bright than anybody else, because I, I, you know, it's taken me an awful long time to, to, to have the, the market knowledge that I think I now have. And this is, you know, this is 20 years ago. But the, the thing I, that struck me was that the, the, the specialization inherent in, in almost all city firms is such that the bond guys don't know what the equity market's doing and vice versa. End of story. They haven't got a clue. Yeah, and the city, and, and the city and, set and, up and, for that. And very purpose. often, very often, the equity people don't know, who are looking at businesses don't understand business either. So, the, as you go up the sort of levels of abstraction, the, 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 there there is a there is a um, a widening of the gap between what's actually happening in real businesses with real balance sheets and real making real decisions, the pieces of paper that attenuate to those businesses, and then the financing environment that, that sort of encapsulates everything. And the further you get away from the ground, the more abstract and less, I'm going to say, practical it becomes, which has always seemed to me to be one of the great advantages of business owners who have an, an understanding of finance, but none of the institutional restrictions of those who manage money or capital um, at an institutional level you know, for other people. So it's a huge advantage and one that's, that people 
are very slow to realize. The number of entrepreneurs that I talk to, business owners, who don't even recognize that they have an advantage is staggering. And the ones that do recognize, they tend to do extremely well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's not to say that there weren't other people that, that saw it as well, but it, it, the point was that um, it, it's, what's the expression? They don't ring a bell at the top of the market. Well, they kind of do. It's just that you've got to know where... You, just, you, know, know, you, have, you have to be able to hear it. You have to be, be able to hear it, exactly. And um, But what what's interesting about this current cycle and this 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 land cycle a couple of things i think um so, so like you uh, Stephen, i've done some ex- a bit more research having learned a bit more about akil's um uh, you know analysis and i've been fortunate enough to read his book which is still in development but will hopefully be out next year and we will have him back on the show to discuss it um we could have him on you know before the book comes out but um, but you know that will be available, which I think in itself is quite amazing. That this is, it's, it's such a, a powerful work of of, um, of research. And even though I was expecting it to be a really great book, it was it has exceeded my expectations. I don't know what you thought of it. Um, it was beautifully written. I thought. I did too. Yes, I did too. I, 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 my I would have preferred him to write a professional book, more of an economic treatise yeah. than a more popular one but that's for his audience and it's it's a great it's, it's he's done a great service yeah so I, I i agree i thought it was going to be quite technical and it it was actually just really enjoyable to see how how uh, accessible he made it all um with some brilliant examples but that's all to look forward to um but the the interesting thing now is um i, I may have to buy all the copies and burn them <laughs> <laughs> well the, the interesting thing about that i don't i, I know what you're saying about that I, I having talked to people about this whole thing and the, one of the questions i think phil anderson who's Akil's business partner has been asked a few times, you know, will the, the cycle stop working? And the answer is no. Uh, it won't It won't stop working. In other words, it will continue. And the reason why it will continue is because it's a bit like markets and, and how history just keeps repeating itself. Even when people know about these things, A, they don't really believe it. B, there's many people who hear about it, don't trust it. And even when they know, they don't want to believe it. And human so, nature never changes. So, so exactly. And so, there there are certain people who recognise the value of information. And I've I've said this before, but you know, it's, it's bears repeating. You know, you've got Tim, who's a value investor, finds out, learns about trend following funds, and then says, you know what, that makes sense, and I'm going to have that as part of my strategy. You know. So that's someone who's got an open mind and says, look, I hadn't heard about that before. That definitely works. I'm using it. And then you've got people who just say, you know what, technical analysis or whatever the analysis that's based that's based on, and you could argue whether it's technical or not, it's, let's not get into that, um, says, no, 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 no. It's, you, you can't do that. You've got to, it's just got to be a Buffett-only style value investing you know, system or, or, or whatever. So th- obviously you've seen the value in it. Stephen, and so have I, but people will read it and not believe it, and they think it won't repeat, and 
they won't quite know how how to use the information anyway. Now, I think there'll be a good few people. I mean, like, for example, if people who are listening to this, even if every single person followed it, it still wouldn't make any difference. It's Was it Paul, you, you'll know this one. Was it Paul Tudor Jones that said you could you could publish the, you know, the basically the, the systems I follow, the rules I follow on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? It wouldn't make any difference because people haven't got the discipline to follow through on it. That's true enough. It wasn't it wasn't Tudor. It was, it was someone like that, though. Yeah, wasn't no, it? it was the it was the guy who who set up the turtle trading um you know the the original turtle trading. Oh, so it was uh, uh, Dennis uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis Eckert. Dennis, yes. So it was it was him. Um, and and actually, that in itself is a very interesting lesson because those turtle traders and for people who don't may not know about it, but the, the, these there was a a, a bet between um, Bill Eckert, who was a who's managing a fund, and somebody in his, his Richard Dennis. Richard, Richard Dennis, Dennis. Richard Dennis. That's right. So it's Richard Dennis and. It's, some people say it's where the film Trading Places came from. I don't know whether that's true or not. But in any case, he had a bet that you could teach trading. and the other, With no prior experience. With no prior experience. So they, they, they devised this system and they got these traders in. And they told them, this is what you need to do. You need to follow these rules and you need to follow them to the letter. And the problem is people wouldn't follow the rules they were told to buy a breakout to a new high and they they look at it and they think mm, yeah well it's a bit expensive at the moment you know i'm going to wait a little bit and see if it comes back down and they would break the rules so they wouldn't have the discipline to follow the rules anyway and so some of them became fund managers in their own right and became very successful and some of them just couldn't do it and i think that that's pretty much sums up how how investing works and it's, it's such a personal thing that unless it makes sense to you it's not going to work if you don't really believe it then you're not going to take the trades when they come let's look at the property market at the moment according to the cycle i think the property market shouldn't actually go down that much it should actually stabilize and go up i've seen nothing but bad news in the press I've spoken, everybody I've spoken to, literally everybody who's involved in property markets, which includes a fund, it includes uh, a very smart entrepreneur who's got, you know, a few million to invest. And again, the press and, and everything else, a couple of entrepreneurs who have got millions to invest, they all to man say that the market is overvalued and it's going to go down and and it's um, not a market to buy. And so I, I find that fascinating. So we will see from now whether the market actually goes any lower um, and whether they're right, whether there will be this big recession that's coming. Because it would take a lot of guts to actually step into the market and start buying property. Now, I know it's property is a big generic term and it's where you buy it and what you buy. If you buy an expensive flat in London, um, premium maybe that's not such a great investment Akil said himself it depends where you buy if you buy somewhere outside of london um that has better growth potential um and of course he does very much finer analysis on this stuff um th that might be where you should be investing but, but isn't this it's the same as there's a stock market and then there's a market for stocks and they're not the same thing yes exactly so so it is fascinating it will be fascinating to see how it plays out well, I, I can give you a, a very practical example of how, of how I'm, I'm using Akil's model. I'm, uh, um, I'm very involved in a business in um, 
um, in the US, um, making a significant impact on the, on the way that residents are managed by property companies, say insurance stroke tech company. Um, brilliant people running it. And the idea is, or our sense is, that if we do what we say we're going to do, um, the business will be on an accelerating growth path in a multi-trillion dollar industry um, within the space of a couple of years. And on the back of the map that I have in front of me, that I scribble in and look at every single day, we are planning our entire strategic priorities for managing and growing the business on the back of that map. Um, and, you know, we, I, I'm, I'm fully expecting that we will be taken out by 2026, and we're certainly going to be in a position to do that um, for the simple reason that at the moment I have no, I've got no hypothesis that is as well-founded as the one that Akil lays out. So using that actively and saying, all right, on the assumption that it's true, if it were to be true, how would we plan our next three to four years? What would we need to do today, next year, the year after? Um, what relationships do we need to build? What, what capital do we need to raise? What priorities do we need to set in order for us to be in a prime position six months before that um, presumed peak in activity. And because there's no point in doing having these things if you don't actively embed them into your strategic planning. It's no, there's just no point. Otherwise, it's just, I don't know, fantasy or porn. Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing about Akil was that when he came on during the COVID crisis and he was saying that the property market shouldn't really go down that much. And I, I found that quite hard to believe. And because it was a mid-cycle recession, it, it didn't. It, it didn't. And it was, <laughs> it was phenomenal. Um, so part of the analysis is to see what he says and see what happens next. I think the interesting thing about this coming cycle is there is a move away from tech stocks into value stocks. And there is a focus on the real economy and there is a, a, a higher level of inflation. All the things which Tim's been saying for a very long time separately, which I, th I think is, I think that in itself is fascinating how you can sort of be positioned for something. And it takes, you know, these cycles take a long time to come to fruition, but here they are um, sort of laid out in this, um, in in this longer cycle, um, and 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 we're on the cusp of that now. So it, it is very interesting, and also the dollar, I believe, should weaken in this coming cycle too. Um, to actually predict that is is massive. It's a huge huge thing to be able to to do. So in terms of actually reading around um, Akil's model. Did you, what, what other sources have you looked at? Because Fred Harrison was the economist who's written a few books um, in, in the, 
you know, the power in the land. He was, I think he was the one who influenced Akil. He was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I may be wrong, but I thought I saw something about Fred Harrison saying that the, the end of this cycle is there's going to be, it's going to be a big one. <sighs> and I'm sure there'll be a whole range of cocktails of opinions mm. around that from the experts who are reading the runes and the tea leaves. My guess is that, um, that the next big one will be unstoppable. They won't be able to catch it. And therefore, we will have a, a regression to the mean. And beyond it, commensurate with the excesses that need to be cleaned out. It's as simple as that. And it will take... It'll take a lot of structures with it, which you know. You know that I'm a, I'm a, I have a certain um, empathy for the fourth turning um, as a concept. And if if they're right, if, if we are, 2030 is the beginning of the first turning. If that's a sort of roundabout, then plus minus two years either side. If we are into a a new seculum in 2030, which coincides exactly with the 18-year land cycle low point, if 2026 is the peak, well then, it all points to there being a radical um, reorganisation of what we can all see is an entirely rotten system of governance that is no longer serving anybody. I would argue not even the people who appear to be profiting most from it, because the effort that they're having to expend to keep this thing from collapsing is enormous. You know, I don't I don't envy them for one moment. They genuinely believe that, you know, the globe is going to explode in four years' time if we don't stop using oil and and stop living and stop breathing. I mean, they, they, they genuinely believe it. They must do, because they wouldn't otherwise expend so much energy, if you'll excuse the pun, um, trying to to stop the inevitable. You know, the, 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 the lunacy that we're seeing in energy policies is gradually being revealed for all to see what, what exactly what it is. It's just, it's ideological nonsense. Even the arguments that they're bringing are beyond embarrassment. So I think it's, I don't think this system, these massive bloated agencies, this unbelievable weight of debt, the the, the effort having to be expended by these people to, to explain the inexplicable or to pervert logic every time they open their mouths, it must be exhausting for, for them, poor loves. And I can't believe that that, is sustainable for very much longer. And we may get, we'll probably get a last burst in the blow-off up to 2026 is my guess that, you know, in come next year, there will be a, things will have calmed down. I think this, this drawdown in 2022 will give plenty of slack for a renewed loosening of interest rates and generally more accommodating behavior. We've got a run up to a, to an election in in um, in the US, which is always a time for opening the sluices and spending. The election campaign has effectively already started. Um, 
so there's no reason to suspect that we won't we won't have accommodating economic an economic environment. But the next, the, the next, but the next time the the inflation genie will be well and truly out of the bottle. It, it will be, and I, th- and I and I think that the next break, whenever it is, and as I say, I'm sort of putting my money on 2026. The next break will be cataclysmic, mm. insofar as it will sweep away the rotten institutions and governance structures that have that are making us all so fucking miserable at the moment. Mm. And good riddance, you know, and and it won't be the first. It's not as if it's not as if we have we our generation this seculum has somehow reached a point of of wisdom, maturity, and equilibrium that we can say with absolute certainty that we will never again have any cataclysmic event in our society. We've got everything under control when we so patently haven't. No, absolutely um, not. There's far more. Well, we can't have a financial crisis because Janet Yellen said there wouldn't be one. Well, right, you know, and uh, <laughs> didn't didn't Gordon Brown, that other great humble man of wisdom, say that he, the boom and bust cycle had been forever banned from you know, the British economy? What, the I mean, guy just, who sold all our gold in 2000 and what was it? The great gold trader. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, we we all make mistakes, but blimey! I mean, that was that, to say to, I, I, again. It's like how how can they have not learn from well, history? We, to if say, we make trading mistakes like that, we don't get promoted to we, the to, to chief executive officer. That's true. A couple of years later, that's true. That's true. If that if that happens on our watch as CIO, then we definitely we shouldn't. Um, but the world of politics is a different one. So my take is that we urgently, urgently need a cleansing of the Aegean stables of our governance, and that will be a a secular event. In, in, in using the word in terms of a secular, it will be you know an eighty to ninety year, three four generational event, because we have a three four generational amount of um, of malfeasance, malinvestment bad money, rotten institutions um, to get rid of. So, you know, I'm not being I'm not being catastrophic about it. I just think we need it. We absolutely need it in order to be to 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 have the chance of renewal without all this nonsense. So what what we were referring to at lunch was box three, wasn't it, Tim? And you you were thinking perhaps this box three event could happen sooner rather than later. I'm, I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to to cede the point to 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 Akil, but yeah, for so the people who aren't familiar, so the my 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 big picture, big big thing point has been that effectively, <clears throat> when a government gets not only government, but when all governments effectively get head over heels uh, out of control in debt, then there's only really three three alternatives. One is that they try and engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt serviced. That's probably impossible. The second box is that they default on it, or if you prefer, they restructure it or there's a debt jubilee but either way that would be an extinction level event for banks and pension funds so let's park that one but what's in box number three is what what every heavily indebted government ultimately resorts to throughout all of recorded history which is you inflated away it's quite straightforward yep. so that that so i think what what's what we're all really sort of arguing about is just how, how long that you know how long that takes and what 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 over what time scale it unfurls but the well, it's already it's, happening, isn't it? It's, al- it's already, mean, ha- it's already I mean, happening. The, 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 fact, already the, the, the fact that we have deeply negative... Well, firstly, 
the rate of int- the rate of inflation that we are being sold is a bogeyman is a anyway. Is a lie. It's be, it's been much higher than that for much longer. Um, so the real real rate of inflation is significantly above that which we are being sold. First, the, the good news is the Chancellor is going to introduce an inflation X inflation measure, which is going to be amazingly <laughs> stable. <laughs> Yes, so-called core inflation, so, and and we've been we this whole NERP and ZERP policy Insanity. regime. But it's not insane if you understand what the true rate of inflation is, and your objective, as you say, is to get debt back under control in relation to your nominal GDP um, figure. Well, as long as you can keep the growth ticking along a bit and you have negative interest rates and a relatively high level of inflation, well, then that's you know doing it on steroids. So at somewhere between 6 and 12%, take your pick, um, negative rate of interest. If you compound that in over 10 years, you know, you've got rid of most of your, mm. your debt problem. The, where, where the issue went completely pear-shaped was during COVID and the need to pile on even more debt at a faster rate than the negative interest rate, the negative real interest rate policy was was benefiting you. So, you know, it's they, they just can't help themselves. And and because the system is so utterly debt dependent now, and there is no there is nobody in sight at all who has even the slightest inkling or political capital to adjust downwards and to do anything about those debt levels you know even i say even um osborne as chancellor thought that he was attacking tackling the debt levels by just not having as big a debt every year mm. um you know, that's the sort of mathematics that but we, we never had austerity we just had faux-sterity um, I, no, I haven't heard that expression, but it captures it exactly. But the, the, the sorry, the, the 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 whole inflation narrative is 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 a completely fallacious narrative to begin with. So everyone's being told this this lie that it's all as a result of war in Ukraine, whereas as you've alluded, it's it's largely due to the trillions of dollars that were printed to pay people to sit on their backsides watching Netflix for the last two years. Yeah. So you know, the, but as, the, as, as but as Mises said, Ludwig von Mises said, uh, inflation is not something that's like a disease like the plague. It's not something that comes out of a, a clear blue sky or an act of God. Inflation is a policy. Yeah. And that's what the media is sing- singularly failing to report um, accurately or honestly. Inflation is a policy. But if you, if you speak to 100 people, not one of them will acknowledge that. I'm I'm spending an awful lot lot more time with Ludwig this, uh, these last few months, um, rereading his theory and history, rereading um, human action. Um, I've I reread that last year, so I don't feel the need to go back to that. But I'm um, I've the, got, ne- the next time we meet, if you haven't already read it, I'll give you a copy of um, uh, Jürgen Hulsman's The Ethics of Money Production. I have it. Oh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, cracking, it's a cra- cracking read. It took it, me well, several years to pluck up the courage to read it, given the title, but I'm glad I did. Well, it's, a, it's, it's great. And we've, we've, we've discussed the, the core principles of that book um, beforehand or before times. And I, 
Lud- Mises is great reading for the clarity of his thought and what what we are we are currently deeply in a managed socialist economic environment. There's there's no question that we've already we've passed that Rubicon a long time mm. ago. The only que- so if you follow Mises's um, diagnosis of how this plays out. Then total collapse of the currency system. It, the, 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 the logic is irrefutable because every single step of the way has already been described by him and others. They, they you just look at the map, and I like maps. You know, I like mm. seeing where we are in the territory, and the you can exp, you know you can argue it away till you're blue in the face. There, there is no doubting. Where on which trajectory we are. So Mises's um, Mises's uh, diagnosis of of inflation being a policy. Well, we've seen that policy playing out over the last forty years, and mm. on steroids in the last twenty, and on mm. double steroids in the last ten. So uh, it's every aspect of of the managed socialist economy and the liberty and the the encroachment on liberties, we're seeing it playing out as it steps up and ratchets up with every new initiative or month and crisis until eventually the whole thing either has to be under total planned control and ownership, which is the logical end game for this, or it doesn't get that far because the whole system breaks. And, you know, I know which way I want to go, I'd rather have it break and then we can all repair it again rather than have us go through the agonies of a totalitarian planning system. Are you still involved in buying businesses in Germany? And no. Okay. And no. why not? What is it the economy there or, or Yes. Right. And so what how do and, you make, and, how, and and quite honestly, I don't want to go there anymore. So uh, what um what do you use as your roadmap to as to whether you will buy a business in in a certain country? What what are the metrics that you look for? Well, I've spent ever since the presidential order three one eight seven five or whatever it was was lifted in April, the end of March last year, which allowed non-U.S. citizens to go back to enter the U.S. without um, for anything for other than, for other than um, humanitarian reasons. So in other words, since you can go start going back to the US, I have focused all of my energies on um, business in the US. And it is, it's like a breath of fresh air. I think I've spent, I don't know, of the last six months, probably spent three in the US and find it refreshing to say the very least. There's such a difference between the cultural energy in the U.S. and the entrepreneurial spirit and the general feeling of creative destruction and rebuilding. And I know that has a lot to do with the, the type of people that I spend time with, but wherever I've, got, wherever I've gone, and I've traveled broadly in the last six or seven months, it's a different. It's not just a different country. It's a different planet to Europe, and I see personally 
very little reason for engaging with Europe at the moment. I think Germany's on a self path of self-destruction. Who the hell knows what's going to happen there? Um, what Where Germany goes, the rest of the EU will go with it. And England and Great Britain, <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> speechless. So, if, so you, if you had to choose between Germany and the UK, then which would you choose? I know it's the, the UK. Least, okay, so, so that gives an indication. So, so when you're measuring businesses in America, and and what is it? What's the activity? What are you actually doing there at the moment? Um, working with and investing in um, entrepreneurial businesses, established businesses in growth activities who are looking to to leverage what they're doing um, moving on to in improving their business models probably reframing their business models and scaling up basically fascinating and so, so how do you actually choose those businesses uh, what what's what sort of process do you like using the, the kind of roadmap now do you are you more wary of say tech companies and you want more real I've businesses? never well I think tech tech all companies are tech companies well all um, companies need a, a, a large a tech, proportion of tech, tech. Ele- right so if you ask me the the things that drive um, that drive growth that take a business from a sort of profitable medium-sized, small to medium-sized business doing somewhere between 10 and 50 million US dollars of revenue with a margin of 8 to 12, maybe 15% if they're in a particularly um, innovative area. thing that takes that to a, from a business worth five, six, seven times EBIT to a business worth a few times revenue is a re-engineering of the business model and the astute combination of capital, technology, and people. And I would argue that almost every business that is already established has the opportunity through application of creative thinking around its business model and its and its leverageable assets. Um, to create something, to create an entirely different type of business that is worth far more than just chugging along doing what it's always been doing. Um, and I have I have several um, examples of that. In fact, I'll be writing about one um, gentleman, friend of mine, who has done extraordinary things from his original base five or six years ago with a basically a plumbing company. He owned 18 plumbers, or they, they call them HVACs in, in America, um, which is heating, uh, ventilation, and um, um, climate, what are they called, air conditioning. Yeah. And he has turned that business, which was a, you know, a mid-single-figure um, multiple of EBIT business into a business worth several times revenue um, 
in an ex- just just by applying intelligence, strategic intelligence to his business. Quite quite extraordinary. And I can I've, I can list you know, 10, 15 businesses that I can that I am seeing doing that. Um, and I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So are you still looking to buy uh, businesses in liquidation and sell them? No. No. Okay. No. Is it was it is it because the business outlook is, is first, too well, good? Firstly, first, no, because um, particularly in Europe, and you will see this is happening in Germany, and you'll see it in all the other countries. The bankruptcy laws are being changed dramatically to stop companies going into bankruptcy, basically, oh, or to liquidation. Okay. So they're being suspended. So they're turning into zombies. Well, they are. Um, and during COVID, you saw what happened in Germany. In Germany, businesses that were that would otherwise have gone under within if not the first quarter of a recession, absolutely would have gone under in the last part, you know, when the curve turns and pressure on working capital increases as order flow increases. You've always got a lag, particularly in manufacturing businesses, between business turning up again out of a recession, which you have to pre-finance, usually at exactly the point when you've used all of your reserves, you know, you've 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 pared down your working capital to the absolute minimum. You've maxed maxed out on your credit lines, such as they are, at the end of the recession. You have not invested in maintenance and upkeep. You've postponed capex just to keep the business alive. And as it turns into the upswing, well, you're suddenly out of capital because you have to pre-finance your working capital. You've got about 90 days of um, of status quo inventory and material to finance, to pre-finance before you actually get your bills paid. And if you're in an upswing you know, with growth rates of at production level of 10, 15, 20%, as you come out of the recession, the banks haven't twigged it yet. They don't believe it. So you're having to finance that out of, well, somewhere. And that's when most businesses go bust. They don't go bust going into the recession. They go bust coming out of it. Fascinating. And, I never thought and, that. Yeah. And, and that's when well-capitalized businesses pounce on them because they are capable of delivering into a market um, because they are well-capitalized. You know, they've, they've got, they can deliver to customers. So the customers will go to the places where, you know, even if they haven't bought from you beforehand, if you are ready and able to supply, coming out of the recession when everybody else is tooling up, um, then you'll get the business. And you know, if you're clever about it, you won't give those percentage points back. So well-capitalized businesses coming out of a recession have a not only a strategic advantage, but they've got a quasi-monopoly in their sector if they are the best capitalized business out there. So anyway, if insolvency laws are suspended and the state is sort of effectively supplying free capital to those businesses, well, they are distorting the normal reorganization of market share to the stronger hands by keeping weaker businesses in play. And in that sort of situation, you've got no, you haven't got a cat in the house chance because it's it's no longer economics and business; it's your access to free funding that um, that is going to make the difference. And it's impossible to 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 make economic calculations in those um, 
in those environments, particularly as you can't do the things that you would need to do in insolvency. So there's just the businesses just aren't there. The good, the 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 marginally good ones that are just not making it, that are the really attractive ones because you don't want the shitholes. You know, there's no point in going to a business that is completely broken. You want ones that whose business is good but whose balance sheet is bad, but not so bad that it's irreparable. And those are exactly the ones that have the easiest access to to, um, to free money when the government's handing it out, because they're the ones that the government definitely wants to keep alive. Um, so the market just disappears for for restructuring and and on the brink of insolvency businesses. In terms of um, accountancy across uh, at the American states, is there? Are there different rules, or no. uh, so it's it's all homogenous? No, and, no, no. And do you have just any- there are different tax treatments and different um, different sort of tax policies in the different states, but basically it's much of a muchness. You know, things like insolvency, bankruptcy laws are different from state to state. Um, healthcare f- regulations are different from state to state. But basic accountancy, it's all US GAAP. So you're constantly obviously having to follow these rules in order to know, to pivot out of buying liquidated businesses and and, and kind of working with um, businesses to sort of uh, analyze how they can grow faster and, and, and better by looking at their balance sheets and looking at what they're doing. Um, so are you constantly reading legislation and and seeing how things are changing no no i'm not no um what i'm doing is teaching and teaching makes you i'm I'm teaching well i'm teaching entrepreneurs about finance so i'm part of an organization called birthing of giants birthing of giants is a probably the the smartest entrepreneurial growth accelerator program for established businesses they're very very selective about who they invite onto the program. I know the people who organized it. I've known them for years who are running that program. We were, they were at MIT. Um, it's a private institute, it's a private business, but they, they were affiliated with MIT up until this year and they've now moved to Princeton. Um, and I'm over there four times a year teaching my bit of that program, which is growth finance and that gives me the opportunity to meet with 20 to 25 incredibly interesting entrepreneurs, male, female, different ages, across all sectors, um, four times a year, which is you know, 100 people. Um, and that's, that's good enough for me. <laughs> Great stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. And I love it. And it, you know, it's forcing me to do something that I've not done before, which is teach, you know, stand up and explain stuff in a way that is relevant to entrepreneurs. Um, and I I just love doing that. I'm, as I say, I'm on the board of experts for that particular program. Um, and it's been a revelation for me doing that. I just love doing it. As a process, it really forces you to understand what you're it does. It, you actually it does. learn more yourself. I do. Yeah. People yeah. find that quite quite strange but it's absolutely true because you have to know it inside out to teach it if you know if you're going to be 
um, diligent about your work. You have to. And, and of course, all the questions that you're going to get um, need to be answered. So they they kind of keep you honest as well. That's, it sounds like it's a real passion because reading businesses and balance sheets was something that I got from our previous pods that you really enjoyed. So being able to to teach that and um, teach that to other people. Well, I do teach it. And the really fascinating thing is that I put a lot of emphasis on the balance sheet and my sort of program is around using the balance sheet to help you understand the story of your own business. And you know, we've talked about that in previous years, um, that that is something that I'm very interested in. And I believe it's a key skill that entrepreneurs can and should learn. And it's particularly important if you're looking to remodel your or redesign your business model to know what how capital will impact that. And one of the benefits of doing what I'm doing is that I will have a queue of people. You know, it's a week's program and I will be up at six and not get to bed till 10, even though the program is sort of eight till five in the afternoon, because I will be sitting down reviewing people's balance sheets, you know, which is a little bit like chickens asking a fox to come in and have a look at the, the nesting arrangements. Um, and I absolutely love doing that. So, so that's my primer for understanding all the wrinkles of LLCs, C-Corp, S-Corps, the various tax entities. I can see all that playing out live by looking at you know these very different entrepreneurs from different states, different industries, different points in their growth trajectory, and assimilating the information that I am being shared with them in effectively saying, telling them the story that their numbers are telling me and having conversations around that. So um, it's a win-win for everybody. Have you ever thought of, well, I'm sure you've thought of it, but will you be putting your your material into some form of manuscript yourself that, that people could, who can't attend this course could, could buy and learn from you that way? I would love to do, well, I do have. I, I do have a, an ambition and that ambition has been gelling in 2022 and I will be tackling it in earnest in 2023. And that is, I would like to um, devise a course, most of which I've already got either on paper or in my head, for entrepreneurs and people who are interested in, in the business of business to teach them financial fluency in an asynchronous way. And I want to reach a million people in five years because I believe that having a fundamental understanding and a paradigm, a mental model for comprehending what finance means in a business is so crucial to the probability of being successful that, and it's not taught you can buy, there are a hundred books and I've got about 50 of them in my library on accounting for business. And there are some really good ones and there's some awful ones. But unless you start, but they all assume that the people buying them and reading them have a basic mental model that allows them to incorporate the information that they're being presented in the books. And most of them start 
with that false assumption. So if if I'm somebody who who says something along the lines of whenever I see my numbers, my eyes fog over or my brain goes numb or something, which I hear all the time, then you can buy as many books on accounting as there are and you will not get through any of them and you will not understand them because of the way that our brains function when they don't have a robust intuitive model for processing data that comes in. So I, unless I can reprogram you and give you an, a model through which you can then approach the information, in this case finance, business finance, unless you have that model embedded, you're just you're never going to get friendly with the information. You're ne- it's never going to sort of take root inside you. Sounds a bit like teaching a foreign language. I guess it is. I guess it is, although there is a natural resistance for many people to numbers and finance that's been inculcated since school days when you were told you weren't very good at maths and you hated it. How many people are there that say, I hate maths? And I, you know, My father, who is a very talented mathematician, would say there is no maths in business, it's all arithmetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, some, um, and so you know, even that... And that's so the, the the course that I'm creating or that sort of program of 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 instilling that mindset is um, I'm the working title is Finance for Poets um, because I believe that through using art and poetry you can create a model both of which by the way are sort of complex ways of 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 ex, of expressing complex emotions in the in the in terms of poetry or complex um, um, concepts in a fairly abstract way that requires you to understand what's happening before you can approach it you know not everybody can read poetry it sort of looks odd the sentences aren't structured in the same way that prose is the, the language is is often twisted and you have to know how to read it, but it's more approachable than a balance sheet. But the principles are exactly the same. So if I can teach people to create the mental model that allows them to approach the subject with less trepidation, and so that the information is allowed to enter so that they can start processing it, um, then I think that's something that is extremely worthwhile doing. So, so when you've re- obviously you've read other books on it and you've seen this subject explained well and and explained badly at the same time, is there something that you have that you use uniquely um, that you haven't read in the books? Because obviously, someone who's actually putting their money where their mouth is and buying a business based upon your analysis of the balance sheet, you've got to really know what you're doing. Otherwise, you could get into a lot of hot water oh, um, well i, I don't know think, you're not doing that now but you were doing that and obviously that's where you cut your teeth and your understanding if we start from the precept that every business everybody involved in business activity i would argue that everybody on the planet involved in economic activity should understand firstly that they have a balance sheet everybody has a balance sheet everybody Everybody has assets and everybody has funding, even if it's they're minimal, or they have the they have 
they they carry inside them or with them at some meta level a the basic structure of a balance sheet. They also have the basic structure of a profit and loss statement. They've got money coming in, they've got expenses, they've got taxes, and they've got something that comes out at the bottom, hopefully. Now, the fact that most people don't really know that they've got one and wouldn't know how to put it together if they had, but and a small subsection of them then go into business, still not knowing what those things actually are, is precarious. So all my job is to explain that reality in a way that they can then say, oh, okay, okay, I get it. And then go off and do what they do, understanding the basic laws of finance and how it's organized. Because basically, all any business ever does is turn money into stuff and back into money again. That's what it does. And the balance sheet shows you where the money's come from, the stuff that you've turned it into, and the mechanism for transferring it back into money again is the PL. So once you've got that sort of basic how the machine works, and I spend a lot of time building up to that simple fact using sticky notes, <laughs> and anybody can do it. You know, and it um, and once you've got it in your head, you can't unthink it. Once you've understood the beauty of mental models is if you've got one that works, if you've got a good one, it becomes the foundational framework for your thinking forever afterwards. And you know, that's and that's what I teach. And whether somebody goes out and buys a business or not, or just runs theirs better, that you know, that's entirely a that's that will vary from case to case. But the basic principles apply to everybody in business. Everybody. And I would argue everybody involved in economic activity. That is fascinating. So you you start with the individual. Do you actually do you actually use that as your example, taking an yep. individual person? Well, I use my daughter actually, who um, who wanted to make money when she was nine or ten, baking carrot cakes. So Bunny's carrot cake has now become my go-to example because <laughs> fantastic. So it works. Brilliant. The carrot cake and, theory. Yeah. And, and my my. When I take people through the course, my what I always do, I start with two balance sheets taken from the Edgar database of two very large U.S. corporations. Could do anything, and you know what the balance sheets look like if you if you pull them out of a out of Edgar or or from the annual report. They're very dense, very dense, and they've got you know sixty or seventy lines of stuff. And I give give them to people who, who who genuinely say I have no idea and they look at them and they they can they can't make head or tail of them it means nothing and my guarantee is and what I do at the end of the course we get both of those back again the names are, are blacked out and then we practice deconstructing them and starting to read the information that they've learned by using my five sticky note process. And in every time I've taught this, a large number of people in the course will be able to guess pretty accurately which those two businesses are, just from the numbers without the... So that's a huge transformation, going from staring at a, a, a 
quagmire of numbers that mean absolutely nothing and are just confusing to actually being able to to make a pretty good guess at what those two companies are just by retelling, just by the story that the numbers are telling. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I really would like to read a book like that. That sounds <laughs> fantastic. Well, I, whether it's a book or not, I don't know. Oh, because um, it could be a whole course, right? I see. I, yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I think people learn differently nowadays. I, mm-hmm. You may not see me dancing on TikTok <laughs> um, in, in 60 second videos. It could be a meme coin, though. Could it be. could well be a meme coin. Um, <laughs> Which I'm happy for you to finance <laughs> and explain to me how it works. So, um, Tim, was there um, anything you wanted to ask or add? Or, or The only thing I would add is some late-breaking news. This is from The Telegraph. Fears of Christmas champagne shortage as world's biggest producer warns stocks are running low. Some might say that's quite a cynical attempt to try and bump up champagne sales ahead of <laughs> Christmas, but let, let, let the reader be the judge, is, is what I say. <sighs> Some, something else where we have Potemkin markets, we now have Potemkin markets in champagne. It's apparently because of all the Americans advised, taking advantage of the strong dollar to snap up bottles of French fizz, so there we're we told. Well, 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 I just, think yeah, I think your English fizz is still in. in this no is this is exactly the this is exactly the thing. So English sparkling I, wine, it's fantastic. Been, well, I, English champagne, as I prefer to call it, because it annoys uh-huh. the frogs so so much. But I've been basically boycotting French um, wine since Brexit, with possible exception of occasionally a glass of champagne. But I'm I'm now, now going to be even more keen to, as you say, uh, add to my consumption of uh, the English the English champagne instead. Um, let's go media pick, shall we? Oh, are you still doing those? Brilliant. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. Um, but, but just before we do, Stephen, was there anything else that we hadn't asked you about or talked about that you, you wanted to say on the show? Um, no, no, other than possibly to say that there is, I think people have a choice as to whether they let themselves get dragged down by all the doom and gloom or recognize that there are enormous opportunities, enormous opportunities today. I mean, if if business is there to solve problems, then the quantum of problems is an expression of the amount of opportunity that there is out there. And at the moment, it would appear to be that nobody is seeing anything other than problems, which would seem to indicate that this is a time of enormous opportunity and i think it is and we could do an awful lot worse than than taking a slice of entrepreneurial enthusiasm from the states and applying it here back at home because god knows we need a positive approach and a mindset of of possibility to tackle the problems that we are facing and i have no doubt that if we if we are left to get on with it, um, the entrepreneurial classes across all ages in probably every country of Europe and the UK will rise to the task of doing it. And I know that sounds a bit dramatic, but I absolutely believe we've got to stop consuming this fear porn. And if if I could. One piece of advice to people, and that is to turn the bloody television off. Just turn it off. Stop reading the newspapers and go out and experience life properly and then draw your own conclusions. 
Yeah, that's that's very good advice. That's very good advice. And um, there was there was somebody in the media world that said, if you've got time to if you've got time to consume, you've got time to create, which is a kind of similar thing. Because um, I, I do love the media picks, but I also don't want to go down a rabbit hole of spending t- too much time, you know, just watching series that you can get really hooked on um, when you could actually be learning something like how to read a balance sheet. But but that said, um, Tim, what what is your media pick for this week? So as we discussed over our, our only slightly liquid lunch earlier, um, I, I turned Halloween into a basically a month long event. <laughs> only Tim uh, would do that this 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 year. <laughs> so I've been basically sort of stocking up on on Halloween worthy material, and the film that I saw, and I don't think I've mentioned it before. Um, the film I saw for the first time was um, a film called Kwaidan, uh from 1964, I think, which is Japanese film, a collection of four Japanese folk tales with supernatural themes. Director is Masaki Kobayashi. Um, the origin material is actually from, if I can find his name, uh, a writer called, uh, I knew I was going to lose all this stuff. Um, he's got a very, a very exotic name. Um, bear with me. Um, ba 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 ba. Um, Kobayashi, is the, Kobayashi is the director, but it's based on stories from someone called Lafcadio Hearn, who, with a name like that, is probably half Latin American and half half Irish. But they're they're ghost stories from about a century ago. Um, the best way to describe it is uh, it's the, one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. The color is just lavish, and um, see if I can find the review. But there was someone, I think it was. Um, a British film reviewer who just said this film is almost too beautiful to be to be to be terrifying. Oh wow! To be to be scary, but it's it's basically a portmanteau film. So there's four stories: the black hair, the woman of the snow, Hoichi the earless, which sounds a bit macabre, and in a cup of tea. But they're all, the Irish one. <laughs> they are almost certainly, but they're they're all they all look stunning. Um, they're all really, really lavishly shot, and they're all quite creepy in their own way. But it's like it's a perfect Hollywood film. Uh, sorry, perfect Halloween film. I um, mean, it's called Kwai Dan, and it came out in '64, but it's in color, and it looks just unbelievably, uh, unbelievably ravishing on the screen. Fantastic! I'm definitely, definitely going to check that out. Stephen, what do you do? You have, or do you want some more time? No, no, no. I've got. Um... I've got a small rattle bag for you. Um, okay. Are you sure you want to share that uh, in the flesh? I mean, we might we might get pulled off YouTube if you get your rattle bag out. <laughs> Do you not know what a rattle bag is? I'm revealing my ignorance here. Aren't <laughs> Me I? too. I don't know what that is. <laughs> a rattle bag is a, is a is a bag that um, that used to put toys in. Okay. And and it was it was it was like a sort of sack cloth bag with embroidery on it's, it this also sounds like a, a halloween no no, no horror and, and, horror and, and, and children and all the children's toys would go in it i'm telling you the rattle bag could easily be a horror film yes <laughs> <laughs> okay well it just means a collection of various items i um, see so like a bit like a toy box, but like a sort of a, 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 a softer, wait, it's clearly a bag. It's a softer toy. Okay. Yeah. I think a mishmash. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's a bag. It's a rat. It's a bag that rattles with children's toys inside. <laughs> if they're, <if> they're <laughs> rattly toys. <laughs> it's going to be a long evening. Um, okay. So I've got one pair 
One of them is a podcast and one of them is the book that I read out of the podcast. Right. And both of them are so fantastic that I've had to listen to them, listen to the podcast twice and read the book twice. It's Tim Ferriss's 407 mm. podcast with Sam Zell. Oh, wow. Fantastic. It's been a while and, since we've had a podcast pick. And Sam Zell's biography, autobiography called Am I Being Too Subtle? <laughs> should be Tim's. <laughs> and it is without doubt one of the most powerful business and life story books I've come across in years. Is Sam Zell the guy whose parents basically trekked across the world yes. so that he could yes. be born in America? Yes. Escaping yes. from the Nazis. Well, it, the, that wasn't the reason. He was born. He was born when they landed in America, but he, I think, his mother got pregnant on the way. They spent yeah. two years going from Western Poland. They went east to get away from the Nazis. They took the last train out of their village on the before 30th, it was bombed, wasn't it? Yeah. On when was the was it the first of September that the, the um, 30, thirty nine. 39 was it was yeah. it the first of september or the 30th I think, I think so i think it's the first it's september so on the 30 on the first of september they fled and an hour later the train line was bombed behind them with mm. the so and they spent two years getting across up to up to estonia latvia vilnius mm. um and then across russia to japan and then from japan um up to to the states so it's that's just the beginning of the story. Absolutely mm. fascinating. The audio book that I'm listening to at the moment is, um, and I'm almost finished, is James Holland's Brothers in Arms, which is a story of the D-Day landings and the campaign in Normandy told through the diaries and letters of men from primarily the Sherwood the Sherwood tank company um but it's unbelievably powerful and i decided to take it as an audiobook because i had a feeling that it would work better in sort of the audible narrative form and it's superb i can't recommend it strongly enough and films got two and they're both sort of indicative of what a middle of the road film consumer i am but it's the only film that I've seen three times in a row. Um, I think it wasn't quite on three consecutive days, but it was certainly within the space of 14 days. I went to see Maverick in... Um, um, Top in Gun the, 2. Top Gun 2 in the cinema. Oh, yeah. And God bloody hell. It's, so I mean, yeah, it's a fantastic film. And driving home with... Mighty Wings on full blast on the stereo system was um, was just the crowning glory of it. I even managed to get my wife there twice. So there's that. And the other day I saw, um, I watched About Time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's which, fantastic. I've recommended it. Which is that. a lovely, lovely, lovely film. Yes. With a delightful moral. Yes. And that one little sort of snippet at the end when... When he he says no spoilers, uh, no spoilers, no spoilers. Okay, yeah. no spoilers. But the moral of the tale at the end, I know what is, you're saying. I know what you, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I, it's quite it's, beautiful. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful film that has been missed 
represented. If you look at the IMDb, it looks like a love film, and it's and it's not. It's it really isn't. It looks like looks like a romance, but it's not. It's actually a guy's film. It's a real. It's a guy's film. I think women would like it, obviously too. But it's. Oh, well, my my wife made, she made me watch it. She said oh, we've got to watch this, and we watched it on Sunday, and I was, I was delighted. Yeah, delighted by it. It was. Yeah. It's a lovely, lovely film. Yes, um, and very British. And yes, it, it sort of gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, yeah, great, great recommendations. I think that's. That's plenty. I mean, I, I've seen the Banshees of Inisherin, which I really enjoyed. I talked about that on the previous pod. There was a, a couple of other ones that I was going to recommend, but I'm going to leave it there because I think that's quite a lot, and I don't want to overload the listeners. There's but, one from you. There has to be one from you. Oh well, I mean, um, okay. One that I think you really enjoy is SAS Rogue Heroes, which is on the BBC iPlayer about the formation of the uh, SAS. SAS. It's just amazing. It's just totally amazing. Brilliantly acted. Uh, about Paddy Main. Um, crazy but true. Uh, just phenomenal. So I really enjoyed it. I think that's well worth watching. What's, what it's, is it? What's it called again? SAS? SAS Rogue Heroes. Um, it's got Dominic West in it and uh, Jack O'Connell, who are fantastic. They're really great, and it's just it's just a really good, uh, really good series. Um, from the makers of Peaky Blinders, not that I've seen that. I've not seen Peaky Blinders. I know a lot of people really enjoy it, and it's probably fantastic. I've never watched that series, but I really did enjoy SAS Rogue Heroes. Um, so I see you're just noting that down, which is which is brilliant. Um, I see. I, for some reason, Paul, that's triggered an old joke, which is someone says, someone says, do you like Kipling? And the response is, I don't know. I've never Kippled. <laughs> I don't know why that spring to mind. But anyway, it's, it's funny how the mind works, isn't it? Brilliant. Because it's getting late. Yes, yes that's right. The, the witching hour is the fast approaching. Hour. Stephen, it's but, been such a pleasure. And before you go, you've got to let us know where your handles are, as always. Um, so you're obviously on Substack. So yep, goodandprosper.substack.com is where I publish my Friday weekly pitchfork papers. Um, and um, otherwise, my website is being redone, which will be goodandprosper.com. Otherwise, you can find me on Twitter. Um, whilst Twitter is still a, a thing, at, uh, SK Twitter, what's that, Granddad? <laughs> SK and Wilkinson, um, or at Good and Prosper. I've got both, but I tend to use the personal one most. Fantastic, fantastic. So we'll put links in the show notes as always. Thank you. It's been too long, and it's been yeah. so refreshing. A real pleasure to have you back. And Thank you so much, look, both of you. Look forward to you coming on again. Thank you. Always Thank a blast. You. Thank you. Take care. Paul. Thanks, Stephen. Bye. 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 Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. <laughs>